Have you ever heard someone say, I live a life of no regret? Or, or maybe you've rocked something like that yourself. You know, hashtag no regrets. Well, my guest this week, superstar author and longtime friend of Fools, Dan Pink, will beg to differ with this approach to life. His book, The Power of Regret, hits bookstores online and off this week. And Dan is all about how looking backward at regrets teaches us to live forward better. There's probably some success in investing to learn this week from regret. Do you regret buying stocks in 2021? There's probably some success in business to learn here this week. Looking backward, what would you have done differently in your career? And how might you still do those things differently? One thing's for sure, though. You will for sure learn some things this week to help you succeed in life. Dan Pink, you, me. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Delighted to have you join with me this week. You know, reflecting back on last week's mailbag, I so enjoyed your notes about the January that was. As it turns out, January 2022, I think, was the worst January for investors, at least of a Rule Breaker ilk, since January 2008. Now, you might remember 2008 was a very painful year for investors. So, yeah, we kind of felt that pain for one solid month. And yet I'm happy to say, well, that final day of January, it's nice to see Netflix bounce back double digits. February started okay. I'm feeling better about the market. I hope you are too. This too shall pass. But now getting back to our subject this week, this too shall pass. Hmm. You know, sometimes we don't let things pass. And so what we're left with is a regret or regrets, a life lived with regrets. And Dan Pink, our guest this week, wants you to know that's okay. In fact, it's actually very instructive. It's not just human, which it is. It's important. So looking forward to having Dan on very shortly. I want to mention he made a cameo on this podcast in 2018. He told his story, now in retrospect, it was one of regret, about meeting a young entrepreneur who had emailed him. He was a fan of Dan Pink's books. And this young entrepreneur gave Dan this idea that he had for a venture cap startup. And Dan kind of turned it down. He definitely did not invest in it. He thought it was crazy. It ended up being Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb. I'm not saying Dan has too much regret. He probably has some regret about not being an early stage investor in Airbnb. But it's, but it's a great story. In fact, it's worth listening back to, if you like. It was Stock Stories Volume 2. That was June 6th. 2018. So that was that was a great Dan Pink appearance, but this time we're going deep on the power of regret. I think this is going to be a greater Dan Pink appearance. I want you to know we're going to talk about his book. We're also going to talk about book crafting. You know, how does Dan Pink make Dan Pink books happen? And we're going to close this week with a round of buy, sell, or hold, one of our favorite standby features we've done over the years. So really looking forward to this one. And it's Groundhog Day. Looked at from another vantage point. Remember that movie? I wonder if you should just keep listening to this week's podcast over and over again. All right, let's get started. Dan Pink, it's great to have you back to the world of the Motley Fool to Rule Breaker Investing. I am so glad to be here, David. Thanks for having me. So much of your past work has involved, well, in my mind anyway, deep analysis of others' academic studies, integrating the work of others. You, you basically turn unique and amazing insights out of other people's work. This time, though, Dan, it looks like something new happened. You conducted your own original research and at a pretty big scale. So let's start. Could you tell the story of the American Regret Project? Well, I had looked at about 50 years of research on regret, and I found it interesting, but also somewhat unsatisfying. And in the past, I wouldn't have been able to actually scratch that itch. But today, and, and this is a big deal, David, in, in our world, is like a schmo like me can do some pretty sophisticated survey research. And so I worked with a company called Qualtrics, uh, who put together these very large online panels and came up with, a, I think, a pretty rigorous survey 
to try to uncover American attitudes about regret. And our survey sampled 4,489 Americans. It's perfectly representative of the United States of America. And it ended up being the largest piece of survey research ever done on American attitudes about regret. And so, um, and what's amazing about that is that when you look at the data, I was able to collect this data and analyze the data in a way that I think would have mystified mid 20th century statisticians Mm. who were out there doing survey research with notebooks and pencils and papers and not even mainframe computers. 4,489 Americans. What is representative of America? Did you learn anything about demographics that I'm missing? Or like, who are those 4,489 people? Well, I mean, we configured the sample so it represented what America looks like based on education level, based on gender, based on race, based on income, and all those kinds of things. So in political polling, you want to have a sample of uh, likely voters or, yeah. you know, but in mine, I wanted a sample of likely human beings in America. And, and I didn't want it to be skewed one way or the other. And, and I found out some very, very interesting things about, about that, although there were some limits to that research as well. And we'll get into that some, Dan, but I know this bled further into the World Regret Survey and World Regret Survey is at .com. I think it's .com. Yes. Yeah, not .org or .edu. So, so Dan, it got bigger than that. And all of a sudden, you had people reporting in from all around the world. I mean, we're here to talk about the book, which I feel like is being published and is arriving this week. But does all of this work continue for you? Or was this largely to set up The Power of Regret by Daniel H. Pink? Well, the, the quantitative survey was a one-time exploration of American attitudes about regret. I also did, as you mentioned, this qualitative piece of research called the World Regret Survey, which was a, just a, a giant collection of regrets. We, we're up over 17,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. And that proved to be interesting. And, and again, not to try to empty your audience here by talking about research methodology, but <laughs> when, in the quantitative part of the survey, I asked people questions about their regrets and I was trying to categorize them. And I, when I got stymied, I realized in looking at the qualitative regrets that something much bigger and much more interesting and much more revealing was going on. And so this pairing of the two is quite fascinating. But I'm going to keep that World Regret Survey up there. People like it. We've got an interactive uh, map so you can go on there and click a state or a province or a country and say, what do people in Idaho regret? What do people in Bangladesh regret? That's brilliant. And their stories, those qualitative points are thread threaded throughout throughout the book. And, and it is so often the stories that that catch our attention. Now, one of my favorite insights in the book, Dan, you talk about on page 104, it's the difference between regrets about action versus inaction. So it turns out more people have regrets about things they did not do. And I quote, quote, a key reason you write for this discrepancy is that when we act, we know what happened next. We see the outcome and that can shrink regrets half-life. Love that phrase. But when we don't act, you continue. When we when we don't step off that metaphorical train, we can only speculate how events would have unfolded. Dan, I love that that point about action versus action, errors of commission and omission. Really rich soil. Let's let's get dirty here a little bit. Dan, let's first talk about errors of action, regrets. Sure. What we see in what I saw in my research and also in the existing academic research is that people are much more likely to have regrets of inaction over regrets of, of action, regrets about what they didn't do over regrets about what they they did do. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Um, you know, you mentioned a few of them. Um, some of it is that for certain kinds of action regrets, uh, we can undo them. Uh, if you have uh, cheated somebody or insulted somebody, you can make amends, you can apologize. Uh, but inaction regrets are harder to rectify, and so they live longer. And, and so, but this distinction is actually incredibly important in the overall architecture of regret. And one of the relatively few demographic differences we see in the American Regret Project has to do with age. Around age 20, when people are pretty young, they have the same number of action and inaction regrets. But as people age, inaction regrets take over. Mm. Uh, we really end up regretting much more what we didn't do than what we did. And a lot of the the point of the book, The Power of Regret, is to make us better human beings going forward. As a consequence of reading your book, Dan, a lot of us, I hope, will end up making better decisions. It's not always about 
that we should have acted or we should have been inactive. It's actually about being thoughtful about those things. But I think the key insight, again, to, to underline it is it's those inactions, those errors of omission that older people look back on and say they wish they'd done more. So regardless of our age, I think that's instructive going forward. Do you find yourself a changed man as a consequence of this research? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's true anytime you spend a few years working on a book. The person who starts the book and the person who finishes the book are different people. I think on this one, having heard all these stories of people around the world, having interviewed hundreds of them and having read literally thousands of these regrets, it's, it's interesting. You would think it might be a little bit of a downer, but it's not at all. It's actually sort of fortifying. It's, it's heartening uh, to see what humanity is grappling with. And to me, the surprise of this research is that when you hear people's regrets around the world, they keep coming back to the same four things. And these four things actually tell us what people value the most. They, they tell us what constitutes a good life. And so in this weird way, I took on this project trying to explore regret and unexpectedly, it revealed, like, what makes life worth living? <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. And you're speaking to the four. I think we should go there next. One of my favorite words underused in the English language is the word taxonomy, which mm. is how we categorize things. And so you've done that, understandably, in your book, The Power of Regret. And you, you've looked at four core regrets. So let's let's break it down a little bit. We've talked indirectly to these, but let's go to these. So the four core regrets are foundation regrets, boldness regrets, moral regrets, and connection regrets. Now, I feel like I'm doing, I don't know what the morning shows do here today, which I'm setting you up for your talking points with a list of, you know, three to five things. And so here I am. I hope I'm not a lazy interviewer, but let's start, Dan Pink, with the first of the four core regrets, foundation regrets. You think you like taxonomy, David. Here is on my desk, I have a stuffed doll of Charles Darwin. No way. Uh, way. So <laughs> I love taxonomy. And so, and, and I think what's interesting about these regrets is, if I can take one beat on this, is that when I did the quantitative survey, I asked people to put their regrets in different categories. Uh, is this a career regret? Is this an education regret? Is this a health regret? And I found that I wasn't getting satisfying answers. Mm. It was all over the place. And then I realized that deep down, there were these core regrets that were about something deeper and more important than the domain of life itself. Love now, it. to foundation regrets. Foundation regrets, each of these regrets has a certain sound. Foundation regrets sound like this. If only I'd done the work. This is, I think, extraordinarily important for investors. So I have people, again, around the world, if only I hadn't smoked, if only I had worked harder in school. Okay, so that's a health regret, an education regret, if only I'd saved money. That's a financial regret. But to me, those are all the same regret. It's about making small choices at one point in your life that accumulate to negative consequences later in your life. And when people look back, they say, if only I'd done the work. And again, as cliched as it might sound, Aesop had this right. You know, we had the ant and the grasshopper. The, the grasshopper fiddled away. The ant did the work. And in the end, the ant didn't have regrets and the grasshopper had a lot of regrets. And, and that's what people kept telling me over and over again. It's interesting, though. I mean, I mean, fools understand the power of compounding interest. But a lot of civilians don't. And to me, it, it is one of the most important concepts. Again, whether it's about the interest one earns on money or the interest one earns on any sort of behavior. And I really appreciate that. And speaking to our audience in particular, yeah, I, I think that part of compounding, and we're reminded of this during market down drops like we've experienced in recent weeks and months, part of allowing things to compound is allowing things to go down. That actually happens one year in every three. And so foundational regrets, I mean, yeah, around compounding are going to be when people did jump off the train because the train was headed downhill, even though it was going up a mountain over the long term. I hear you there, Dan Pink. You know, you're making me think a little bit of James Clear. I'm sure you're familiar with James's work, Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. This is foundational regrets. That's, that's where we are. We're talking about the small decisions we make from one day to the next. Yeah, and they end up being hard to rectify if you don't get them right. There's a, a great scene in one of Hemingway's books where one guy says to the other guy, oh, I went bankrupt. And he says, how'd you go bankrupt? And he said, gradually, then suddenly. And that's how we 
reckon with these yeah. with, with these foundation regrets and one decision at a time you bet yeah 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 but it, but but what it shows us i think is that again I will, I think of these four core regrets as a photographic negative of the good life, of what we want out of life. And one of the things we want out of life is some measure of stability. It's hard to have a life well lived if you're feeling unstable and precarious all the time. Mm. Let's move from foundation regrets then to the second in our taxonomy, if you will. And that's boldness regrets. Explain, Dan. Boldness regrets are very interesting. They're a pretty big category. And again, just to show you how they straddle domains, think about this. So I'll give a business idea to your audience if they want to do it. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. This is, I'm, I'm telling, I'm not even joking around. This is a great business idea. Setting up a travel agency that serves people who went to college who regret not studying abroad during college. I have hundreds of those. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds of those. Okay. So that's like an education regret. <laughs> then I also have hundreds of regrets from around the world with pretty much the exact same formulation. It goes like this. X years ago, there was a man slash woman whom I really liked. I wanted to ask him or her out on a date. I didn't because I was too chicken and I've regretted it ever since. Romance regret. Mm -hmm. Then I have career regrets that sound like this. Oh, I can't believe I stayed in this crappy job if only I had started a business. I always wanted to start a business, but I never got around to it. So on the surface, these look like very different regrets because they're it's about romance, education, uh, careers. But it's the same regret deep down. It's a regret that says, if only I'd taken the chance. And, and this is a very big category of regret. And like a lot of these regrets, it emerges when we're at a juncture. We're at a juncture. We can play it safe or we can take the chance. And over and over again, people regret playing it safe and not taking the chance. And I got plenty of people who took a chance and it didn't work out for them. And they're less upset than the people who never took the chance at all. He who hesitates is lost as often has been said. And, and we can all look back on our own lives and see moments where, where we did that where we did not show the audacity uh, or even just the lowercase small c courage yeah. to do something. You know, I hear you there, Dan. You know, I can look back on my own life. How many times have I said to people, you know, I should have taken a gap year. I really would have appreciated college more. Uh, and yet I felt like I was on a hamster wheel. I felt like, well, wait, all of my friends will now graduate a year ahead of me. I can't do that. And I have to admit, looking in my own heart here, I think I'm head faking myself when I say that I think that I should have taken a gap year or I regret not doing so. So that's my way of saying how much of the time when somebody says boldness regret, would they actually, if given a second chance, do what they're saying that they would do? And I suspect a fair amount of us may just be saying things and not really being willing to act on them looking back. I, I don't know. What do you think? That's an interesting question, and I don't know the answer to it. But I do think that a lot of us, if given that second chance, would act differently, especially if we reflect on those regrets and think about them carefully and analytically, like not just kind of dispense with them, yep. but actually process them and try to draw try to draw a lesson from them. And that is indeed a lot of the point of this conversation of your book, that it's not really, we can't go backwards, we can't relive it, but we can go forward and make better choices. So that is a little bit about boldness, regret, regret number two. Taxonomy continues number three, moral regrets. Uh-oh. You're at a juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. People do the wrong thing. And lots of us regret it for years. So once again, the universality of this is just breathtaking. So hundreds of people around the world regret bullying kids in school. I was blown away by that. Uh, lots of regrets about infidelity, uh, blown away by that. Uh, and then other kinds of moral breaches. And, and this is a relatively small category, but to me, it's an intriguing category. And it's also kind of a heartening category in a weird way, because I find that if all these people are bugged by breaches of doing the right thing earlier in their life, that it sticks with them. To me, it suggests that most of us actually want to be good. It bugs us if we're not good and that we prefer a life where we actually are doing the right thing. So even though this is a small category, 
it is a, to me, a very heartening category about the human condition. Mm. You know, as you, you and I are doing a video, so we're seeing each other, even though this is an audio podcast, and I almost felt as if you were my rabbi or my priest as you talked about the moral regrets that I maybe should have or should be thinking about. It does remind me a little bit of one of my favorite preachers, actually, no longer living, but uh, Morris Boyd, who, who, who was in New York City, and he once had a sermon entitled In Praise of Hypocrites, and you'd think, you know, mm. wait, I'm going to church, and, and that's the sermon? But his whole point was... Here's the thing about hypocrites. At least they know the right thing to do, even if they're faking doing it. There's something to be said about a moral compass or a North Star where even if people aren't getting there, at least they're aware of it. So that that is praiseworthy. It was a very fun and contrary sermon. Always stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've read some of the research on moral hypocrisy, and in general, people despise hypocrites. Hannah Arendt wrote about this. She wrote that people despise hypocrites more than people who are just like purely evil. People who, <laughs> people who fake, you know, being good and then are not are more worthy of our disdain than people who are just overtly, unabashedly evil. I, I totally hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that, that said, I mean, these moral regrets are, are pretty interesting. And, you, you know, at, at times during this world regret survey, I felt like I was running an online confessional. So... If the writing thing doesn't work out, maybe there's maybe I have a second second career as an online priest or something. <laughs> well, and at one point in the book, I can't. I think it was about a third of the way through, but I remember you talking about um, that sometimes the Western. I don't know. A lot of our audience is traditional Western. Yeah. Uh, however, you were raised, you were you were of the West, and we assume your morality is my morality. We assume that you know we all kind of have a general sense of right and wrong, but it's a lot more open and squishy than that, isn't it? In reality, uh, it's a great point. It's a very, very good point. I'm glad it's your you point, made. Dan. It's it, your I, point. I, it's not even my point. It's basically <laughs> the point of what we know from from moral psychology, particularly, you know, sort of encapsulated most brilliantly. Jonathan Haidt. Of Jonathan Haidt, which is that, you know, we have some agreement on what's morality. We, we shouldn't cheat people. We shouldn't harm people. But on other kinds of things, there's it, it there's not as much of a consensus. So I'll give you an example of this, David. Uh, I have people who in the database, Americans who really regret not serving in the military. And other people will look at those regrets and say, what, that's not a regret. And it's like, well, no, it is because for this person that he or she, and I had some plenty of she's, both men and women, they felt a moral duty to serve. And that, that sense of duty, that, that sense of respecting authority, that, that, that form of moral reasoning is very powerful. It's just not shared by everybody. Thank you for that. And yes, you're right. And here I am, pages 116, 117 now, I remember, where you do talk about how not every book you read, Dan Pink, makes a big impression on you, but The Righteous Mind, Heights Work, I think 2012-ish, really did change your mind about a few things, affected you. That was one of the things you learned. Have you continued to follow his work? What are your thoughts yeah, about it? Yeah, I mean, I, there are a couple of big things there. Number one is that morality is not one thing, it's many things. And morality, especially uh, as conceived by Western, secular, well-educated people, is actually somewhat narrower than it is in the rest of the world, where it includes moral precepts like duty and authority and things being sanctified. So that's one big point. The other point, which I think is even more profound, it's less directly related to regret, is that what, what Haidt and others have found is that our instincts about how we make moral decisions is off. We think that we take a controversial issue, controversial moral issue, uh, gay marriage, abortion, whatever. And what we do is we just reason through the the pros and cons, the rights and responsibilities, and then arrive at a, a well-reasoned decision. And, and what Heights and others research has shown <laughs> is that that's not how it goes. What we do is we have an instinctive emotional response to right or wrong, and then we use reason to justify those instinctive responses. That to me is a, is a revelation uh, when, I, when I read that. And, it, and as someone who was years ago trained in the law, it exposes, I think, mm something that I had an instinct about when I was doing this, when I was studying the law, but never had the words or the taxonomy or the, the construct to, to understand. But in, when it comes to moral arguments, reason is a press secretary 
Its job is to serve the boss and the boss are our innate, instinctive, emotional responses to moral questions. Well said. You know, a lot of criticism aimed at economics, especially some of the backward looking now work, was that economists were assuming that humans are rational creatures and so made various assumptions about what you or I would do, um, efficient market theory, if you will, lots of other examples. Um, you know, We're all clearly rational creatures, so this is what a rational creature would do. Therefore, economics suggests this or that um, approach. So I, I think we're being reminded, you're helping remind us this week, that we're, we're kind of crazy creatures. We are, we are complicated. We are much more complicated and nuanced than one would think. And so a single model of human behavior is going to be inherently insufficient. What we want is we want multiple models. And we also, and this is something that I've been learning, David, is we want to wrap our heads around the fact that there are contradictions. That is, at some level, we are thinking, we've always thought of behavior as something that is purely mechanical and consistent. Yes. And, And in many cases, the way that we behave is more like quantum physics, where two opposite things exist side by side where the, the is the cat alive or dead? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. With Schrodinger. So, and, and again, I love what you're doing here, Dan, because we, you, you and I started talking about taxonomy and the initial assumption you made is that people would have their regrets about um, their romantic life and about education, but you double clicked and you found that underneath those are four core regrets to summarize. And then we're going to go to the fourth one, We talked about foundation regrets, if only. We talked about boldness regrets. I should have, would have, could have, should have. And now we just talked about moral regrets. The fourth one, probably the one that jumps out to me is just most interesting and most affecting. And that those are connection regrets. Hugely important, the biggest category. And again, if there's one thing that in this book that changed me, I think it's all the stories in the in the connection regret. So a connection regret is this. You've got a relationship. It either was intact or should have been intact. And it, to some extent, it doesn't matter precisely what the relationship is. It's sometimes with your romantic partner, but but often not. Parents and kids, kids and parents, siblings, other relatives, huge numbers of regrets about, about friends. And what happens is this. You have this relationship or should have had this relationship, and it comes apart. Now, what's interesting is how profoundly undramatic the way these relationships come apart. They very rarely explode. It very rarely involves people throwing dishes at each other or cursing each other out. They tend to drift. And what happens is is that one person says, oh, I should reach out, but it feels really awkward and the other side's not going to care. And so they drift even further apart. And that sticks with people. And to me, the lesson of these connection regrets, and there's a lot of good evidence in the literature about this, is that your fears about it being awkward, it's way less awkward than you're going to think. Is it going to be well-received? It almost always is well-received. And so we're actually hobbled by essentially a fake barrier, a barrier yeah, that isn't- something we're that, telling ourselves in our own heads. Exactly, exactly. And even, I mean, I had this, t- you know, in doing some of these interviews, there was this one woman who- who sort of drifted apart from a very, very close college friend. And it really bugged her. And this drift went over, you know, more than 20 years. And and she said, oh, you know what? I I would reach out, but I haven't talked to her for a while. And she's going to think it's creepy and she's not going to care. And and finally, you know, in my role as priest rabbi, I said to her, okay, hold on a second. (laughs) Just let me put it the other way. What this woman's, the, the second woman's name is Jen. What if Jen reached out to you? Would you think that was creepy? And she said, oh, no, that would be the best day of my life. I I would be so touched. And, you know, again, this wacky species that you and I are both members of sometimes are imprisoned by what's called pluralistic ignorance. That is, we think we believe something and we're so special that no one else believes it. And, you know, it's like the old there's an old journalistic adage always extrapolate from your own experience. You're not that special. Wow, Dan. So this this interview is speaking back to a number of past Rule Breaker Investing interviews, authors I've had on just off the top of my head right away. Let me mention Steven Pinker, who in his book, in, in a lot of his work, he points out that when you ask Americans, are you happy? Dan Pink, are you happy? Something like 81% of us say, yes, I'm happy. Then you ask, 
Dan Pink, are others, in your opinion, happy? Like, And you'll say, no, like 27% of us think that the other uh, fellow Americans are, are happy. So that jumps out to me, Pinker's work. Nick Epley, you include one of his studies in your book. Nick Epley, I had on the podcast in May of 2017. I want you to retell this story very briefly. I realize it's just one of a thousand different studies you probably looked at, including your own. So I don't know how well you remember this, but Nick's job as a social psychologist in Chicago, he decided with a research partner to pay people to hang out on the L or Chicago subway and initiate conversations with strangers. And initially, this sounds a lot like what you just said, but it's it's re-underlining it, Dan. Initially, people thought, wait, that's going to be that's going to be painful. You're, you're paying me, right, to, to start conversation with strangers. I don't want to do that. And? So Epley and his team had these research participants go on, on this commuter train uh, into downtown Chicago, and they said, you're going to strike up conversations. Your job, you've got to strike up conversations <laughs> with strangers. And they asked them to predict, how are you going to feel about that? How's a stranger going to feel that's about it. it? And the prediction was, oh, my God, it's going to be the most awkward thing in my life. It's going <laughs> to, I'm going to hate every second of it. How is the other side going to feel? They are going to hate it. Spoiler alert, it wasn't awkward. It was actually kind of enjoyable. And the other side was kind of into it. We are not great forecasters of our own behavior. We don't realize at some level how similar we are to other people. And we we don't want to admit that. The other thing about it is that we don't realize actually that we change over time. Dan Gilbert Mm. has done some very good research on this. So the classic example of this is, is if you say to me, hey, Dan, are you different at all when you than, than when you were 25? Oh my God, I'm so different. Oh, I'm just a completely different person. I have different interests and different values and things like that. So what do you think you're going to be like when you're 75? Oh, pretty much like I am now. <laughs> uh, so we are, you know, we're, we're, we're not very good forecasters about ourselves. We have these, we have these various blind spots. And, and that's one of the things, I'm glad you mentioned this, David, because I think it's one of the things that I like about this emotion of regret. It's its a negative emotion and we tend to shy away from it. But as I've spent you know, the last few years immersed in this, it is an incredibly clarifying emotion. It clarifies, it instructs, it teaches us. And so you know, if we're open to receiving its messages and its lessons, it is actually transformative. So again, we're talking about connection regrets here. And whether you think that other people are unhappy while you're happy or you think that that stranger would never want to talk to you on the plane or the train, you're probably not right. And you're going to feel some connection regret later on. I'm thinking now back to the world of money sticking with connection regrets. Dan, I had Amy Costoro who wrote a book called Preparing Heirs. I think in its new edition, it's Bridging Generations. But Amy and and her ilk have pointed out this is about generational wealth being passed down. Seven times out of 10 studies have shown, done by Roy Williams and others over decades globally, seven times out of 10 passing down wealth to the next generation fails. It does not accomplish the goals of gramps and grandma or um, the legacy that they thought that they were setting up. And, And why? And I would say in Dan Pink's words, connection regretted. Turns out you're not getting fleeced by the estate lawyer or by an inept or fraudulent wealth manager. The reason this fails most of the time, most of the time, is you didn't communicate. You didn't include your kids or your grandkids in terms of, are they aware of what's happening? Are they on board with what you're thinking of? You didn't ultimately connect with those for whom you were setting up this legacy. And so in the money world, And this was a surprise. This was an eye-opener when I talked to Amy, and I I realized for the first time that this is very common. But now, connecting that into Dan Pink's work, I see that it's connection regret. It's just a failure of connection. I agree with that completely. And and the thing about it is that there's there's one piece of like very tactical advice in this book that's been meaningful to me, which is that if you are at a juncture in your life and you think, should I reach out or should I not reach out? It could be with your children and grandchildren. It could be with your friends, whatever. If you say, should I reach out? You've answered the question. Mm. The answer to the question is yes, you should reach out. And I think that to me on a personal level, that is one of the most profound takeaways of this. People deeply regret not reaching out. And it could be simply making that phone call, taking that visit. I have David 
hundreds of people who deeply regret missing funerals. I have a regret about that myself, about missing a friend's funeral. Um, and so when in doubt, always reach out. If there's a single lesson from all these 16,000 people, for me, that's what it is. And as you're saying, it not only has a restorative effect on our well-being, but it actually has a knock-on effect of allowing us to plan better for the future. Is this a challenge to the introverts? We, we often hear that the extroverts get energy by being connected with other people. The introverts like to be by themselves more or to reprocess by themselves. This is obviously cartoonish in its simplicity as I summarize yes. this. But is, it, is this a call out to introverts to make sure that they are connecting? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that the introvert extrovert research is much more nuanced than Myers-Briggs would have it. Uh, and most of us are a little bit of both. And, and so it's possible to reach out to people in a quiet way. Um, you know, reaching out doesn't mean going to a party and putting a lampshade on your head and dancing on the table. It could simply mean sending a, an email or a text to your college roommate, you know, um, so that's part of it. But what's interesting is that there is there is a dimension of this in the boldness regrets. That's very interesting that, that, you, that you pick up on. And I have, again, the commonality, the universality is just breathtaking. And, and I have hundreds of people who regret their words, not mine. I wish I'd spoken up. I wish I'd said something. I wish I'd asserted myself. You have very few people who regret asserting themselves, mm. being too bold or being at some level being too extroverted. I do have some people who say I regret being too introverted. And, you know, as someone who like like me, I'm a writer, I'm sort of in the middle of things. I'm more introverted than extroverted. I'm not a super strong introvert. There is some pretty good evidence that if you are somewhat introverted on that spectrum, that trying to nudge yourself a little more toward the center is probably good for your probably good for your well-being. Mm. All right, Dan. Well, there's no doubt more we can say and probably will this week about regret. We're going to continue that, but I want to I want to click out for a sec. So let's go meta a little bit. I want to talk about book crafting and how mm. Dan Pink books are made, where they come from, um, how many more there are going to be, whatever you'd like to say. I want to start, though, with a conversation you and I had some months ago, just hanging out with each other. And at a certain point, you said, I got stuck a little bit. I think it was on this book. I'll let you speak to it, Dan, but I got stuck. And then you, you tapped into your friend, Fred. Fred, who lives, I think, in Argentina. And Fred, who I know, because it's Fred Kaufman, who's a conscious capitalist and has written a book called Conscious Business. But Fred said, Dan, it's because what's the purpose of this book? So what I loved about that is 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 purpose and purpose-driven. And I'm wondering, Dan, uh, what did the purpose of this book end up being? And do you regret not having purposes for your other books? Or let's just talk about purpose a little bit. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. So in the early days of working on this, I was not getting any traction. I was, forgive the cliche, I was spinning my wheels. I, I was like going to my office all day and not getting anything done. And I wasn't making any kind of progress. And it was so frustrating to me because I'm usually a reasonably productive person. I'm a tortoise, not a hare, but I'm a tortoise who moves forward every single day. <laughs> and I was a tortoise like on my back. And I was so frustrated, David, and I didn't know what to do. And I, and, I, and I reached out to people and I said, I think I might need a coach. And so a friend of ours uh, pointed me to, um, to Fred, who said, okay, I'm not really coaching anymore, but I'm happy to talk to you for a little bit. And I talked to Fred for one, he was in Mexico at the time via mm -hmm. Zoom. And I talked to him and told him what was going on and maybe like, 15 minutes in, like it didn't even take him any time to diagnose what the problem was. He said, oh, okay, I know what's going on here. You don't have a purpose for this book. And I said, what do you mean? And I said, no, you don't know why you're writing this. You don't have a purpose. So I don't even want to talk to you anymore, Dan. What I want you to do is <laughs> I want you to write me an email telling me what the purpose of this book is. And then wow. once you do that, we'll talk again. And I'm like, oh man, like you're supposed to help me write, not give me more writing assignments, you know? And, <laughs> and so... I hemmed and I hawed, and I, I sort of realized that he was right. I was a little resentful. I realized that he was right, and I thought about it. And it took me like two weeks, and I finally started thinking about it, and I wrote it out, and I sent him an email. And the email said what the purpose of the book is. And he says, okay, 
Now we're talking. Wow. Now you can get unstuck. And now, again, you and I are talking by uh, video conference. Yes. So are, you're millions of you're listeners. You're looking to your right. It's like you have something posted on your wall to your right of your exactly. computer, something like that. Right. So what I've got here is that thing that I drafted for Fred. Love it. And I used it as like a signpost, a, a North Star, where I say, I'll read it to you. Uh, the purpose of this book is to reclaim regret as an indispensable emotion and to help people enlist it to make wiser choices. By changing the conversation about human flourishing, this book will spark millions of people to reclaim their own regrets and thereby lead richer, fuller lives. Wow. I should have led off the whole interview this week with that. Why did, why did I leave that buried till minute 34 or something? But, that, but that's powerful, but, but I man. I think that the, the interesting thing about that is, is how much knowing why we're doing something and having a purpose for what we're doing is, is clarifying. And, and, you know, and I keep coming back to that word, David, and I think it's partly a pandemic word because the pandemic feels so hazy and muddy and confused and sluggish is that we're looking for clarity and one, and and I think purpose gives us clarity. And as I mentioned before, I think regrets give us clarity also. Mm -hmm. And a big part of, I think what's gone on in these last two years is people frobbing around trying to make sense of their own lives. And we're not that well equipped to do that. So here I am who writes, you know, write books about human behavior. I'm stalled and stagnating and languishing myself. I have to make a cry for help to Fred the prophet to tell me what to do. And so anything that we can use to find clarity, I think is really, really powerful. So purpose gives us clarity. I think that regrets give us clarity. I think to some extent, you know, reckoning with our mortality gives us clarity as well. Yeah, well said. So, Dan, I'm thinking, is this, is The Power of Regret the first Dan Pink book that had a purpose statement? It's the first one that had a purpose statement. If I ever wrote a book again, and believe me, that's an open question, I would do that purpose exercise again. The previous books, I think there was a purpose that was latent in there, that was embedded in there, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't as explicit. It wasn't the kind of thing where literally, David, in a struggle to write a sentence or a paragraph or a chapter, I would look over and say, oh, yeah, that's why I'm doing this. Mm. And Dan, you and I have talked uh, over the years at Fool Events and on this podcast about a number of your other books. And so this question is kind of about, is there any kind of narrative arc going on here in your mind reflecting back on the book's Uh, that you've written. Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of A Whole New Mind. I'm thinking of something totally different that I thought was so much fun, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko. I'm thinking of When. Do you see any thread looking back that makes sense? Do you see purpose? What underlies all of your amazing, truly amazing New York Times bestselling literary work? You know, I don't know if there is a thread. There might be a thread retrospectively that we can concoct, but prospectively there was no threat at all. It's, it's much more mundane than that. It is what am I curious about and what, and what am I so curious about and so interested in that I'm willing to spend Mm. years working on it, but not only that, but also subsequent years still talking about it. So you mentioned, you mentioned a whole new mind. That book came out almost 15 years ago. And, you know, I still, I'm still totally psyched to talk about that. Um, and, and, and I think that one of the things, and I, there might be a life lesson here, but when, when I think about writing a book, it's really hard to write a book. It's a giant pain. It's so difficult, especially, I mean, for me, it's been always, every single one has been really, really hard to do. And so you have to pick something that you adore, that you Mm. love, that you obsess over, that you can't live without. And most topics aren't that way. And so you really have to be selective about what you about what you choose. And so so for me, what was more important is not so much fashioning some strategic literary plan and, you know, and executing that than it was at this moment in my life, do I want to spend two and a half, three years learning about regret? You know, previously, do I want to spend two and a half, three years learning about the science of timing? 
and that's all that it is. And so it's a it's a very singular metric, which is, do I want to live with this deeply for a few years and at least lightly for possibly for decades? Earlier, you said that Jonathan Haidt teaches us that while we might try to lawyerly construct some sort of logical proof of why we are where yeah. we are. In fact, it's it's our gut, and then we justify it backwards. So I appreciate, Dan, you not trying to say there is a narrative arc, because there wasn't, and that would just be, that would be fake. Yeah. Prospectively, there was none. There was no overarching strategy behind this. Retrospectively, maybe someone interpreting it might see a connection, but believe me, that connection was not intentional. Now, the other interesting thing about this is goes to something we were talking about earlier is this. I don't want to get all woo-woo on you right now, but I mean I do, but I'm 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 recognizing how unpleasant that can be. Is that is that the person who wrote Free Agent Nation in 2001 is a different person from the person who wrote The Power of Regret in 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 on this particular book, there's no way on God's green earth I would have written a book about regret in my 30s. Hmm. I didn't have the perspective. I didn't have enough mileage on me. In my 50s, at some level, it felt kind of inevitable because I'm reckoning with these things. I'm at a juncture. I mean, we are similarly situated. We're at a juncture in our life where we look backward and there's some mileage there. But we also look forward and there's also some mileage there. This is why on one of your previous, you know, you had that incredible podcast where you basically announced that you were going to take, a, you know, do something else and try to figure out what that what that is. And and that's not a podcast or not a, a move you would have made 25 years ago. But now it seems kind of inevitable. And I think that for me, writing this book about regret felt in a weird way inevitable at this stage in my life because I myself am looking for that guidance and that clarity of how to li- how to have a well-lived life for the next, I hope, several decades on this planet. Mm, beautifully said, Dan. And one word that you've used repeatedly, especially in the last 10 minutes, clarity, clarify, clarity. Um, I'm not sure. Is claritas the Latin root? Anyway, so I'm thinking about, about clarity and that clarity that purpose gives you. So I'm thinking going forward from here, now that you've written your first purpose-driven, if you if you will, book. Do you see more clarity about what's what's next for you? I hear you uh, cagily mentioning that you might or might not ever do a book again. I hear you saying, and I've done this too, they're really hard to do. And I can absolutely, as a lazy bum, I can absolutely appreciate that I don't like to have to work really hard if I can work smart instead. Dan, where are you right now going forward? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it's like like in the in the very short term, I'm 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 excited to enact the purpose of this book, which is to try to help people reclaim regret, use that- it as that force for clarity that you were just mentioning. Beyond that, I don't know. You know, um, and and I'm I'm trying to be as open to it, and also recognizing that if I look back on this juncture in my life in ten years, twenty years, thirty years, what I'm going to regret is pretty clear. I'm going to regret not being bold. And I'm going to regret not having connections to other people. Those are the two mm. things that will haunt me. And so that's going to inform what I that's going to inform what I what I what I do next. I'll tell you, just you know, part of me is intrigued by this idea. Having written books for 20 years, is intrigued by the possibility of being a beginner at something. That is an idea that I can't get out of my head. Is mm. going and doing something where I am an absolute beginner. Think about oil painting. I've never picked up a brush or music or other kinds of artistic expression or even a whole new mind, even something athletic, you know, mm. something where I'm a, a complete beginner because there's something ex- exhilarating about being a beginner because you learn so much so fast. And for me, the, the marginal learning I'm going to get going from book seven to book eight is going to be less than the marginal learning I'm going to go from painting zero to painting one. Wow. Two quick questions about book grafting. Let's just geek out a little bit here. Dan, one thing I really appreciate in both The Power of Regret, I definitely had in your previous book, When. um, You didn't have it, though, in A Whole New Mind because I was looking back at it earlier. So in your table of contents, there's like a little summary. Um, uh, Underneath each of the chapters, there's kind of the takeaway. So you can almost read a Dan Pink 
table of contents. This is really great for the Good Morning America Morning Show book crowd. They can basically know the book through the table of contents. I thought that's a pretty genius aid to memory and just learning for, for people. When did you start that? Uh, thank you for mentioning that. I, I really appreciate that because that's very intentional. Uh, I did that in Drive. And the reason that I did it in Drive is that I saw it. I don't remember the book, but I saw it in other books. And I was and I said, wow, I like this as a reader because yeah. it gives me a chance to preview it. But also because sometimes we read books in this fashion where I'll read a third of it once and then I'll put it down for a week and then I pick it up again and I yep. need to get back into it. And so <laughs> it's something that I admired in books that I read. And once again, not succumbing to pluralistic ignorance, I said, well, if I dig this, then other readers will dig it too. And so I'm, thank you for mentioning that. I don't think any interviewer has ever mentioned that before. Well, you're and welcome. It is, it is so intentional as a way to help readers figure out, is this book for them if they're looking at it online or in a bookstore? But also recognizing the reality of people's lives is that it's not like, oh my God, Dan Pink has a book out. I'm going to stop everything in my life and clear all the decks so I can read it from the first word to the last word in only a few sittings with barely a break just to fortify myself. No, it's like, you know, I'm going to read two chapters here and then I'm going to be waiting in the DMV and I'm going to read another chapter and then I'm going to be at my kid's soccer game and I'm going to read a third chapter. And I want to give people ways to get back into the flow of the argument and the storytelling. And you do it very successfully with that. And it's a small thing, but I like to – the devil or God, depending on your viewpoint, both of them are in the details. And so I really appreciate that you took the time to do that. Sometimes I think part of what I'm trying to do, speaking of purpose on the, this earth, is just find good stuff and share it and spread it uh, to Absolutely. as many people as possible. So I hope some authors are listening and will take a look after they purchase your book this week, The Power of Regret. We'll take a look at what you've done with the table of contents for the last couple of books because I would love to see that – catch on another my other book crafting question dan this one maybe is a little bit more onerous for for fellow authors but i'm asking you to coach fellow nonfiction authors here what you did with this book the american regret project the effort you made with qualtrics it looks kind of amazing you, you talked to thousands and thousands of people but you've also made it sound as if it was a lot easier thanks to new technology it was a lot easier than it would have been 50 or 25 years ago. So my question is basically, would you be inspired to do more original new research if you were to write another book? Uh, would you suggest fellow authors do the same? It's easier than ever before. Or was this just kind of a one-off? Uh, th that's an easy one, David. I would definitely do something like this again. Uh, I, I really think that we have the, the tools that are available right now to gather material, to do analysis are just extraordinary. Mm. And, and I have to say, like, I am not a data scientist, but when someone like me, like a reasonably curious, fairly mildly numerate person can use these tools, that is a, that is a game changer. That is a game changer. And, and I do think that there is that, that nonfiction books and form other forms of analysis are going to be this marriage of the great narrative and emotion and storytelling and insights that we can glean from collecting massive amounts of data. Um, and so if I were to write another book, absolutely I would I would use a tech I would use a technique like this. And and again, my hunch is that the tools would be even better, more powerful mm. and cheaper. Yeah. It, it is the story of technology, really, throughout the last couple of centuries, and especially the acceleration that the Internet has brought for so many of us in so many different ways, in this case, authors included. Well, Dan, thank you for geeking out with me about book crafting a little bit. Well, let's get to our buy, sell, or hold. But before we do, let me just mention what's happening on next week's Rule Breaker Investing. Well, next week, it's going to be time to review some five-stock samplers. Now, a disclaimer. If you want to blow next week's episode off, you can be my guest because reviewing my five-stock samplers may not be as fun as it normally has been in the past. Wait, you're still interested? Well, I hope you're not just listening for the schadenfreude, but okay. Well, then please join me and my guest star analyst next week as we review five stocks shrouded in mystery, five stocks that spark joy, and five stocks rolled up at random. Now, why'd I do that? All right. Well, let's close 
with one of my favorite things I've done with you. We've done this with many others in the past, but I don't think I've done it enough in recent years. It's a buy, sell, hold oh segment. Okay. So you know what's coming, Dan Pink. So Well, I, I know I know generally what's coming. I have no <laughs> idea what's coming, actually. It's true, because I never pre-submit interview questions or what we're going to do, so you don't know what's coming. Uh, in deference to you, speaking here to my listeners, Dan has no idea what we're going to do next, other than I'm going to ask him about I think I have six things queued up, just kind okay. of short answers. But if these were stocks, none of them is. If these were stocks, would you be buying, i.e., you like it or you think the future is good, selling the opposite or holding, you're somewhere in between. So back to buy, sell, hold, a classic Motley Fool trope. You ready, Dan? Yes. As you'll ever be. Okay, buy, sell, or hold, number one, New Year's resolutions. Uh, I'm a buy. Um, you know, uh, I think there's some good research on on temporal landmarks, and uh, I think the New Year's resolutions get a little bit of a bad rap because because people say, oh, by by February, people have you know abandoned half of their resolutions, and I'm like, well, they, it means they've kept half of them too. That's pretty good. So I'm a buy on New Year's resolutions. Buy, sell, or hold. Daniel Kahneman, and explain who he is briefly for those few people listening who may not know. Buy, sell, or hold Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman is a psychologist uh, of Israeli descent who won the Nobel Prize in economics for work that he did over many years with Amos Tversky, who sadly passed away before the Nobel Prize was awarded. Oh, I'm a total buy on that. I think he's been a, a revolutionary figure in our understanding of ourselves uh, and actually a pushback to the idea that uh, that human beings that human beings are purely rational calculators of our economic self-interest, that we're much more inscrutable and unpredictable and are often will fall down various kinds of cognitive trapdoors. So Kahneman, bye. The work that he's done has been referenced by so many. I mean, it is truly revolutionary. It's one of those Nobel Prizes that was completely deserved because, wow, has he ever affected uh, the way we think about ourselves, Jonathan Hyde, et cetera. I will mention Kahneman, who's been to Full HQ before. We've done some interviews with him. Not really a big stock market guy. So I'm, I'm selling Kahneman saying that you should never buy individual stocks. I, I definitely disagree with that point. But we need to be able to disagree with the great exemplars of our time on something. All right, Dan Pink, number three, buy, sell, or hold the Winter Olympics. I'm going to hold. Now, I know a lot's going through your mind here, Dan, because yeah. I know you and I are both sports fans. There, yeah. there are also international implications this year, and then I didn't even say this year. That's exactly why I'm holding. You're not going to find someone on the planet who loves the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat more than I. And <laughs> and the Winter Games are a great venue for that. Um, I am, on the international front, I'm I'm pretty disturbed by a lot of the things that China is doing, and so... I'm I'm a, I'm I'm uncomfortable blessing that country with something as grand as the Winter Olympics. So I'm going to put myself as a hold on that one. Well said, Dan Pink. Buy, sell, or hold. Economists. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy. Um, yeah, because I think that at this point they're they've they've taken such a beating that it's an undervalued stock. <laughs> um, and if you think about what economists are doing, that is that they are, you look at a guy like Raj Chetty at Harvard. Um, uh, he's an economist, but what he's doing is he's taking these incredible, gigantic data sets and using them to figure out things like how much does it matter what kind of neighborhood you grow up in to your overall well-being. And so I think economists are, I mean, the idea that, that, that pure neoclassical economics is the best explainer for behavior or for the world, that's flawed. But I think that the, the profession of economics, which is about understanding decisions made under, under scarcity and also using mathematical methods to uh, find insights in data is something that is extraordinarily valuable. I agree. And I'm a strong buy as well. And maybe in part because I don't know, it's always been dissed, the dismal science. Yeah. It's been so the fool in me wants to go against conventional wisdom with you and say it, it is valuable, and clearly it is. An offshoot of this one, this is not number five yet. Buy, sell, or hold The Economist. The Economist magazine. Yeah. I figured I'd throw it in there. Um, I think I'm a I think I'm a hold. Um, maybe, maybe a lean toward, lean, lean toward a buy. Um, you know, uh, I, I like its, I like its coverage of international affairs from the, from a European perspective. 
Um, now, it's also, you know, it's, it's editorial policy is very, very, very neoclassical economics. So, you know, I can take that with a grain of salt. They also gave, a, gave me a really bad review of one of my books years ago. Mm. So, you, But you're rising above. You're bigger than that. Yeah, but I'm only making it a whole, not a buy because of that. <laughs> it shows you like in like I'm, I'm picking stocks nominally to see which is going to rise in value. And yet I can't get past a grudge. <laughs> and yet you're saying it, which says a lot of good things about you, Dan. Uh, slightly more seriously, how do you keep up with the news? There are infinite ways of Facebook to CNN yeah. to Fox News to Internet to I don't know. being texted by a friend, Google News. How do you stay informed in a way that you feel represents the truth as best as it could be objectively presented? Yeah, that's a tough one. I'll tell you, I I, I spend relatively little time on social media, very little, in fact. Uh, I spend very little time watching uh, cable uh, news. Uh, I I don't find those that revealing. Uh, What I I do think, I mean, we can think about this as in terms of like, almost like buy, sell or, or, or hold or like overvalued or undervalued. Sure. So I think that social media overvalued. Mm. Um, uh, cable TV news overvalued. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think are undervalued are things like email newsletters. Um, and not only the recent bout of Substack things, although there's some that are very good, but just the New York Times daily newsletter is one of the best things out there. 1440 is another great daily email newsletter. Uh, Dave Pell's newsletter, Next Draft, is outstanding. And so I find that those kinds of filters and distillations of news are very helpful to me. That's one thing. The second thing is that I also still believe in long-form journalism uh, because long-form journalism um, is often (laughs) fact-checked. So things like The Atlantic and Mm -hmm. The New Yorker. And so one of the things I use there is I use something called Instapaper where I can actually down, essentially save it to read on my iPad later. So I use that a lot. Uh, I still believe in in books. I think we can glean a lot from books. I wish books were better edited. I think that almost every nonfiction book would be twice as good as if it were half if it were half as long. Mm. But I still believe in um, I still believe in I still believe in books. And um, and I also, you know, when I say books, I don't only mean nonfiction books, I also mean novels. Um, I like to read novels, and I think that we understand the world and and can empathize with other people through reading novels. So novels, undervalued. Email newsletters, undervalued. Um, Social media, overvalued. Cable TV, overvalued. Thank you. I think I agree on all points. And since you did throw out some some e-letters, some newsletters that that you that you value, and I think the the world is to the filterers, the trustworthy filterers. It's a very valuable contribution in a world that is just there are so many things. But Dan, I, I should ask you about a novel. Um, how about recommend something a good read anytime in the last five years? Something that jumped out to oh. you that you enjoyed, recent or old? What's a novel we all should read? Oh, there's so many great there's so many great novels. I'll tell you one that I think that your audience would really dig, um, which is a it's a novel called Black Buck, and it is a novel in the form you're gonna love this in the form of a almost like a sales training guy guide. It's like a it's like a story of a guy who decides to go into sales and he's like giving advice on sales along the way. But he's also navigating startup culture. He's African American, so he's navigating various kinds of racial divides. It's a it's a really brilliant, hilarious novel. So, um, so I really like I really like that book, uh, uh, Black Black Buck, quite a bit. Uh, there's another one that I really like uh, by a novelist named Yad Jesse uh, called Transcendent Kingdom. Um, I, I actually love reading stories of immigrants to the United mm. States. And, and this is a story of, it's a novel about, um, essentially about Ghanaian uh, immigrants, not something that we would often, uh, not something that we would often read about in, you know, most traditional novels. It's a, and she's a brilliant writer. Wonderful. Thank you, Dan. Those are two I can add to my list. And by the way, for those, because I can Google quickly, I had not heard of Black Buck before. It looks like the author's name. I'm going to do my best here. Matteo Ascaropor. Yeah. So um, really interesting. Both of those sound very interesting. Thank you. Um, I got two more buy, sell, hold for you. Let's stay on the topic of how we while away our hours. Buy, sell, or hold Netflix. I think I'm a hold. 
I think I'm a hold. There is a little bit of a, there's some very, very good stuff on there. There's also a paradox of choice issue going on where you, you fl flick open Netflix and then you just sit there paralyzed for 20 minutes because you don't know, you don't know what to watch. My antidote for that is on, on Dropbox, I keep a running file of things that I want to watch. So yeah. instead of looking at that, I look at my list. Your list. And, you know, a friend mentions it. You're out of coffee, assuming you're right. socially distanced with that person. And you're like, oh, I should add that to my list. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. I use Evernote in my case, but I, I hear you there. You know, Netflix isn't just a streaming service. It's also a stock that is, for a lot of us, a big holding that's lost a lot of value in recent weeks. It's also more broadly kind of a microcosm of something much bigger streaming and so i'm curious you know hbo max amazon prime dan are you subscribed to all of these do you pick and choose what's your approach to streaming i've got amazon i've got hbo max i've got netflix i've got hulu and that is more than enough <laughs> uh, oh, and, also, and i also have apple tv so <laughs> I, I think i'm over indexed there and possibly even one or two more that'll occur to you later. A wag recently <laughs> suggested in social media that you know what should happen is somebody should take a lot of these services, bundle them all together, and call it cable. Oh, how about that? What, a, what an issue! I mean, basically, I mean, the history of media is basically a history of uh, of bundling or unbundling things. <laughs> all right, let's close it out with buy, sell, or hold. Self criticism. I'm going to sell, and the reason is that. I've read the research. Um, I'm going to sell self-esteem also. Uh, what I'm going to buy is something called self-compassion. Uh, self-esteem has some benefits, but it leads to can lead to narcissism and lack of effort. Self-criticism feels morally virtuous. I love it, but there's very little argument for its effectiveness. Instead, I'm going to sell both of those and I'm going to I'm going to cash, I'm going to cash those in and put all the money into self-compassion, which is the work pioneered by Kristen Neff at the University of Texas, hmm. who says that when we have mistakes and setbacks, we should treat ourselves with the same kindness that we would treat somebody else, that we should recognize that our mistakes are not definitional of who we are. They're just a moment in our life. Uh, and that a lot of what we do, a lot of our setbacks, a lot of our mistakes are just part of the human condition. And once we, at some level, exonerate ourselves with self-compassion, it doesn't lead to complacency. It actually is fortifying and allows us to take the kinds of actions to lead a better life. Hmm. Sounds like some other voices we've had on this podcast before. Shirzad Shamin among them. Dan Pink, thank you very much for playing Buy, Sell, Hold with us here on Rule Breaker Investing. We pre-recorded this last week, but this actually is coming out to listeners on Groundhog Day. So I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in closing, Dan Pink, Buy, Sell, or Hold Groundhog Day. I'm going to sell, man. It's just like, <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I, you know, uh, superstitions. Uh, let, let's get rid of superstitions. I would much rather, I would much rather check the weather forecast on February 2nd than I would to see what happens to some rodent in Pennsylvania. I hear you. Punxsutawney Phil fans, beware. All right, Dan Pink, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the purposeful work. I love the purpose statement for this book and what you said. I trust that you are already in the process of achieving that at the level of millions of people. And that is a great service to the world. Fool on, my friend. Thank you, David. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.